tackling the lost sheep and the lost coin. And if you have your Bible or your smartphone, I encourage you to turn that to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is an amazing uh, passage. It's an amazing chapter. And in it are actually three different parables. And we're going to tackle two uh, this week. And then the third parable we're going to take two weeks on. Uh, and all three parables really lie at the heart of the Christian faith. And they express uh, really God's heart, God's love. The love of the Holy Spirit, the Son and the Father for humanity. And uh, this week I emailed one of our missionaries that we support, Rod and Donna Black. Uh, Amazing people. They served in Pakistan for many, many years. I think it was well over 20 plus years in Pakistan. And uh, they have returned to Canada and they make a trip once a year back to Pakistan But uh, they have done an amazing job back in Canada with missionaries uh, and just reaching people uh, where they're at. And so I emailed Rod and I said, Rod, uh, I'm preaching on the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin this week. And there's a tie-in with the way that Jesus received people and the way that Jesus ate with people. And in our culture, eating is important. When we have someone over for a meal, that's really meaningful. And in Jesus' culture, it was even more symbolic. Uh, To share a meal with someone just uh, communicated incredible symbolism of acceptance and friendship and all those things. And so I said, all right, Rod, have you got a story for me, either in Pakistan or somewhere else? that kind of communicates this idea. And he said, well, actually, one of the times when we had been in Pakistan for about five years, we came back to Canada. And uh, when we came back to Canada, there was uh, an apartment building. And so the missions organization had said, we're going to rent you a place there. And so we were home for six months. We got to visit churches, tell everybody what, what we were doing in Pakistan. And he goes, it was a pretty busy time, but we really appreciated having our own place that they had rented for us. And when we arrived, the week we arrived, these people uh, came up to us and said, hey, whatever you do, don't talk to the people in unit number one. Those people are off the rails. They, you know, they're, they're drug addicts. They're on welfare. They are just, it's a mess. Don't meet the people in unit number one. And so Rod said, wow, interesting. Thank you. And uh, he said, then it rolled around to Thanksgiving weekend. And he said, there was a knock on our door. And he said, you'll never guess who it was. The people from unit number one. And they said, look, welfare has given us a huge turkey. And we know that you guys are like missionaries or something. And we know that you probably don't have many family around. And I don't know what missionaries get paid, but you probably don't have a lot. So we were thinking maybe you could come to our house for Thanksgiving. And uh, Rod says, of course, we accepted right away. We went over. And he goes, you know what? That was the incredible start of a friendship. And he said, over the six months that we were home, uh, incredible things were happening. And he said, the more that I got to hang out with the the dad in the family, 
uh, the more questions he had. And this guy just went all out, and he just had a billion questions, a billion uh, skepticisms about the Christian faith, and Rod kind of gently and kindly walked him through everything, just like a good missionary would do. And he said, uh, within a couple months, this guy had given his heart to Christ. And then he goes, then his wife had lots of questions. She came to Christ. Then finally, there are t- uh, two preteen kids. And he goes, it was such a privilege on just coming home from the mission field that we got to be part of these lot- people's lives. And God did an amazing uh, work in their hearts. And the reason I tell you that is because of the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. And usually when people come to this chapter, they focus on the three parables and they skip over these two initial verses. But these two initial verses are incredibly important. We're going to read those. Caleb's going to throw those up on the screen for us. Luke chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, it is hard for us in 2016 as Canadians to understand why these Pharisees and teachers of the Jewish law were so upset with Jesus. Why are they so angry with them? I mean, why do they care if he hangs out with people that are a little less uh, perfect than they were? What is the big deal? Well, there's a couple things going on culturally that we need to understand. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher. And as such, he was held in high esteem in their society. And for the Pharisees and teachers of the law to hear that a rabbi was hanging out, accepting, and even going so far as to eat a meal with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other unsavory people, they thought that was hugely offensive because they felt like God's holiness was being violated. Our friend Kenneth Bailey that I've been quoting throughout the series, he says, even today in the Middle East, a nobleman or a rich person, may feed any number of lesser needy persons as a sign of his generosity, but he does not eat with them. However, when an invited guest arrives, the host sits down with them. The guest is assumed in any Middle Eastern banquet to be bringing honor to the host. So do you see what's happening here? Prostitutes and tax collectors, the bottom level of Jewish society are meeting with Jesus. The first thing that's happening is Jesus sits down and eats with them. He's not like a rich nobleman that says, well, I want to give you my charity. I'm just going to provide the meal, and then I'm going to stand back and watch you eat. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's right there at the table with them. And in doing that, Jesus is showing, I accept you just the way you are. And the second thing is that just like an invited guest brings honor to the host, Jesus is feeling that the tax collectors and prostitutes are bringing honor to him. And the Pharisees and those teachers of the Jewish law, they are appalled. They are incensed. This just cannot occur. 
And what they think is so shameful for Jesus, Jesus wears like a badge of honor. Pretty interesting stuff. And really, all three parables go on to explain and kind of amplify God's heart that Jesus is demonstrating. Daryl Johnson, the man I took the course on the parables for back in June, says this. He says, Jesus doesn't tell the parables of Luke 15 to defend himself. He doesn't need to do that. He tells these parables to explain why the tax collectors and sinners are being drawn to Jesus. They are flocking to him because in the mystery of his grace, he is seeking them as they are seeking him. Well, all three parables are about the same subject, but three different aspects of how God pursues people who are far away from him, how God pursues the lost. And really, one parable can't take it in. Just like a diamond has many facets, many sides, and we hold it up to the light, and we see all the colors shine through. It's the same with these three parables. If Jesus just told one parable, it couldn't capture all of the aspects of God's heart. That's why the first parable uses the image of a shepherd going out to find a lost sheep. In the second parable, it's a woman trying to find a lost coin. And in the third parable that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, it's a father pursuing his two lost sons. And what's really interesting about all three parables in Luke 15 is that they're greater and greater degrees of lost. In the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep, it's one out of a hundred sheep. In the second parable of the lost coin, it's one out of ten coins. That's ten percent. And finally, in the third parable, it's two out of two sons. A hundred percent loss. And what's interesting, and Daryl helped me see, is that the greater the degree of loss, the greater the degree of joy when those things or people are found. Now I want to clarify something. When we use terms here at Ocean View like someone is saved or unsaved or found or lost, we are not meaning that followers of Jesus are morally superior or in any way more valuable than people who haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus. Those terms, saved or unsaved, lost or found, simply indicate where we are on the spectrum of either running away from God or turning and running back to Him. The parables are told for the sake of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the Jewish law. And ultimately, these three parables are trying to communicate to these guys that God cares about you as well. God's trying to reach you as well. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the Jewish law don't think they're lost. They think they're perfect. They think they're doing everything correctly. But the amazing truth of these parables is that they are lost in a different way than the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes are maybe lost, wrapped up in a world of sin. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are lost because they are religiously lost. They are so blinded to the grace of God and a relationship with God because they feel that their actions justify them to God. They're religiously lost. 
Mark 2.17 captures the mission, why Jesus came really, really well. Mark 2.17 says this, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so there's the introduction. That was the longest introduction I think I've ever done. Are you ready to dive into the parables? We're going to read Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. This is what it says. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country, go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Well, we see this lost sheep. The sheep has wandered away from the rest of the flock. And when I did a little research this week, apparently that's pretty typical sheep behavior. They love to be together. They don't want to be separated from the flock, but here's how a sheep gets lost. They're all grazing in a field together, and the sheep is munching away, and then all of a sudden he sees a little patch of grass over there. And he thinks, man, that is a patch of grass. That is so much better than what I've been eating here. I'm just going to go over to that patch of grass. And he starts eating. And once he's eating, and then all of a sudden he lifts up his head and he goes, look at that patch of grass. So that is really good. And he leaves this one and he goes over there. And that's how sheep get lost. They just slowly follow their appetites. And they go slowly further and further and further away. Now that is an analogy of how people wander away from the faith. I've seen it lots of times. I've seen people show an initial interest. They say, man, I'm really interested in Jesus. I'm interested in seeing whether the Bible is true, whether this local church is is walking its talk. People begin attending, and they are super excited. They are gung-ho for the first few months. Then all of a sudden, their friend puts on a party, and it runs really late till 1 in the morning. And they kind of roll around in the morning and their alarm goes off and they think, do I want to go to church this morning? Man, no, I am way too tired. And they go, it's just once, it won't matter. And they don't come. And then two weeks later, their kid is involved in a soccer tournament and it goes all weekend long. And the, the, the game ends early enough on Sunday morning. They could make it back for the second service, but they go, you know what? That is too much hassle. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then their friend says, hey, I've always wanted to do that little kayak trip with you. And they plan it for another weekend. And none of those things are wrong. None of those things are bad. They're all good. But it's just like that sheep slowly munching one piece of grass. And then he sees something over there and he goes. Now, the really interesting thing about sheep is that when they finally realize that they are lost, when they finally kind of wake up and go, you know what? It's dark. Where did all the other sheep go? The amazing thing about a sheep, you know what it does when it realizes it's lost and separated from the flock? I was. It, it does cry, 
and then it immediately lies down and refuses to move. Not interesting. I did not know that. They just lie down and they're like, I'm done. I am not moving anywhere. I am lost. I'm separated from the flock. Now, what's really interesting in this parable of the lost sheep and this shepherd is that there's two incredible instances of joy. And the first one, the shepherd says, you know what, we got a lost sheep out there. And he knows this thing is way lost. It's lost way out in some pasture, past the woods. And he goes, I know what's happened. That thing has given up. It's lying down. It's crying out. It is a pathetic sheep all on its own. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find that. And he would always have some other helpers, some under shepherds with him. Apparently, almost never in the Middle East was there just one shepherd for a whole flock. And a flock at least of 100 sheep, there would definitely be a younger helper, probably a teenage boy that would be kind of the shepherd in training. And so he would say, okay, you know what to do. Take these sheep back to our homestead. And so he would be taking them back. And the chief shepherd gets his staff as his uh, weapon. He would have had a sling to protect him. And he says, I'm going after that sheep. And he marches through the woods and over the valleys. And finally, he comes to this sheep. And when he finds this sheep, Jesus says there's an incredible uh, joy that rises up in him. He is so happy. He's so excited that he found this sheep. And then that very interesting detail, he says he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders. I always wondered, like, what's wrong with this sheep? Can it walk? Like, just whack it on the rear end. It'll walk, won't it? But it won't because it's given up. It's lied down. It is done. And so the shepherd has to pick it up, put it on his shoulders, and carry it back. And you know, there is incredible joy. I've had the privilege of walking with people and helping explain the good news of the gospel of Jesus to them. And when someone accepts Christ, there is that amazing sense of joy. And you see the light bulb go on, the smile comes on their face. It's like, it's like their spirit comes alive inside them. And that's just what Jesus is saying. That's just how the shepherd pursues that lost sheep. And if you think about it, some of the people I got to do uh, several years ago, I got to do, uh, have the privilege of walking through the people that are enrolled in the Alcoholics Anonymous program here in town. And they have a step five where they have to come to someone they trust, like a pastor or some other person. And they kind of essentially tell you every wrong thing they've done in life. It's quite an experience. So you're not there to kind of counsel them or judge them. You're there to be a really good listener and ask them questions. And uh, it was a really interesting experience. And the guy came this week and he said, hey, I want you to do that again. So I think I'll get that privilege again. And uh, one of the fellows, uh, he came in and the first 10 seconds he's in the office, he says, I'm an atheist. I was like, great. And in my head, I was like, no, you're not. And he says, uh, he says so like, let's not talk about God and stuff. I was like, hey, I'm here to be a good listener. And then at the end, he, he kind of told me all his stuff, took a little over an hour. And, uh, and at the end, I said, look, at the beginning, you told me you're an atheist. And I said, is it offensive if I pray for you? And he kind of looks at me and goes, well, I'm on your turf. Go for it. 
which I thought was pretty hilarious. It's not like I own the building or something. It's super funny. Anyways, I was happy to pray with them. And uh, this rough, tough biker who told me he was an atheist, when I looked up at the end of the prayer, he had a little tiny tear in the corner of us. I was like, you're so not an atheist. Don't even give me that. Anyways, very interesting experience. But it is, it's that incredible joy when you see God's Spirit touch someone's heart and what was so hard begins to crack. You know, I've also seen people that outwardly on the surface, everything looks fine. They, by all the markers of our society, they're successful. But once you peel back the layers, you discover a heart that is incredibly selfish. There's a word for it, narcissistic, where everything is about us. Everything in our life revolves around us. And it is so exciting when you see the Spirit of God pierce through that and someone comes to faith in Christ and they stop being such an incredibly selfish person. And it's like that supernatural power of the Holy Spirit comes in and they begin to care about others. I understand when it says the shepherd has that incredible joy. Well, there's a second instance of joy in this parable, and it's really interesting. You can picture that shepherd out there alone. He picks up the sheep, he throws it on his shoulders, he has a long walk back, and finally he gets back, and there is the homestead. There's the other 99 sheep, there's his helper, and he's saying, hey, I got them all back safely, and he says, yeah, I found the lost sheep. And Jesus says a really interesting thing. He says, he goes and calls all of his family and friends. And he says, help me celebrate because the sheep that was lost is now reunited with the other sheep. And a little party would break out. And they would say, oh, this is so fantastic. We thought that sheep was gone for sure. And there's a woman, uh, Cherith Nordling, and she's a biblical scholar. And I came across this statement she made. I love it so much. This is what she says. We're gonna th- Caleb's going to throw that up for us. It says, God finds us in our sin, one by one, and brings us back home. But that's just it. He doesn't then set up individual relational dyads with it. So he doesn't go off and have a one-on-one with the lost sheep. The sheep is rejoined with the flock where it finds life, safety, and identity in the care of the shepherd with the other sheep. It's an amazing thing. And that's truly the point of the Christian life. Some people assume that the idea is I accept Christ in my life and then it's just me and Jesus for the rest of my life. But that's not the way God has set up the Christian life. In fact, it's always to be reunited with the rest of the flock. And people try it. They say, well, you know what? I'm good with Jesus. I don't need to be a part of a local church. I don't need to hang out with other followers of Jesus. And inevitably, I see them a couple months in and I say, how's that working out for you? And they go, well, to be honest, not that good. And you know what? It's true. That's the way God's designed it. We need others. We need Christians in our lives to help keep us on track. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning, these three parables are told to a specific audience, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They are model, upright, and uptight religious people. 
And they are massively offended by all these people flocking around to hear Jesus. And again, that beautiful statement in Matthew, Mark 2.17, why did Jesus come? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So how does this parable matter to you and I this morning? Well, maybe you're here this morning or you're listening online. Maybe you go, you know what? If I'm totally honest, I'm a lost sheep. The challenge for you today is to stop lying down, just like those sheep do. They give up and lie down. Get up and let Jesus throw you on his shoulders and bring you back to the flock. Maybe you're listening this morning. You're already part of the flock. You've been following Jesus for many years. But instead of being full of joy when that lost sheep gets returned, if you're totally honest, your first instinct is not joy that they're brought back, that they've made their way home, that they're reconciled with God. Your first instinct is, wow, I really want to judge them. You look at them through judgmental eyes. And the challenge for you today is to change your attitude. You know why? So that you can join into the joy of the party. Number three, maybe you've been a Christ follower for many years. But when you look at your heart and you take an honest look at it, you realize, you know what? I am not that inspired. I am not that fired up to make any efforts to help go find lost sheep. You may be thinking, it's not really my responsibility. That's why we pay the pastor, isn't it? Isn't it his job? You know what? Jesus says to each and every one of us, I got lots of under shepherds. I got lots of helpers. And he need all of us to go look for lost sheep. Well, from lost sheep, Jesus moves to his second parable, lost coins. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. So it says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, as I pointed out in the introduction, the parables in Luke 15 have an increasing sense of loss. One sheep out of 100, that's 1%. One coin out of 10, that's 10%. Two brothers out of two, that's 100% loss. It's also fascinating to see that all three parables have the same overall point of Jesus explaining to the Pharisees and those religious teachers why the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors are gathering around. And at the same time, he needs more than one parable to tell it. Now, what's fascinating in this parable is that the first parable, the sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is always connected with the image of a shepherd. Jesus, in fact, in the Gospels, calls himself, he says, I am the good shepherd. So that's a pretty clear identification with Jesus as the shepherd that pursues the lost sheep. And then in the third parable, the parable that we typically call the prodigal son, the focus is actually on the father. We should relabel that parable. 
But the focus is on the Father, and that's pretty easily identified with God the Father. So you've got God the Son, Jesus, in the first parable. You've got God the Father in the third parable. And it's interesting that this second parable, the parable of the lost coins, has always been identified for the last 2,000 years of Christian history that the woman is representative of the Holy Spirit. That's really interesting. So what's she trying to find? Well, she is trying to find a coin. Now, if she had taken her life saving and put it into coins, these would, would be very expensive coins. These would be heavy gold coins. And all of her wealth is wrapped up in these 10 coins. And now she has lost one of them. She is in a panic. She is trying to find this lost coin. And the interesting thing about coins is that coins have no life. They're dead. They're lifeless. A sheep has life, but a coin is dead and lifeless. And that's a pretty accurate picture of the way that some people are far from God. If you think about it, some people get so intoxicated by wealth or popularity or power the effect on their life over a long period of time is that they become spiritually dead, spiritually lifeless, just like a lost coin. Other people have reached such a place in life that they become totally selfish. We talked about that a minute ago. And that extreme sense of selfishness, when life and everyone is there to make your life better, when you reach that point in life, again, it it leaves us spiritually dead. Other people reach such a place in life through drug or alcohol or sex addictions that they believe the lie that they are beyond saving, beyond help, beyond redemption. They too feel like a dead, lifeless coin. Now here's the entire big theological point of this parable. Apart from the actions of the woman, those coins will remain lost forever. I want you to think about that. If the, coin repre- if the woman represents the Holy Spirit and the coin represents people who are spiritually dead in life, that's absolutely true. Apart from the actions of the woman, those coins will never be found. Apart from the actions of the Holy Spirit, people will never come to true regeneration, true life-saving faith we need the regenerating power of the holy spirit i think it's so fascinating when you hear someone's story who was so far from god and they come back to god and they get to tell you their testimony and it's always this incredible web that the holy spirit to put together they say well you know i was in this position and all of a sudden this person came and said this to me. And that got me thinking. And then I met these other amazing people on this train ride. And they told me their story of faith. And then I went through a hard time and I I prayed for the first time and felt like God touched me there and brought me. And there's just a million elements. And it's so obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And I kind of really like that image. You, you picture a woman going around her house trying to find that lost coin, and she's picking up the furniture, and she's looking under. And then she's over here, and she's pulling up rugs, and she's desperate. She's searching her entire house. And just like that parable of the lost sheep, once she finds that coin, there is immense joy. And Jesus says this amazing statement. He says, whenever someone comes back to God, whenever someone is reconciled back to God, he said, the angels throw a party. And there is this massive rejoicing in heaven. I love how biblical scholar T.W. Manson puts it. He says, in both parables, the point is the same. The endless trouble that human beings will take to recover lost property and their deep satisfaction when they succeed, when they find it. He says the inference is that the sinners really belong to God, despite all appearances to the contrary, and that God himself wants them back and takes all the trouble necessary to win them back to himself. And then I look at myself, and I ask myself, Darren, where is your passion level for people who don't know God. If God is willing to do everything necessary, if He's willing to lift up every piece of furniture and rip out every rug to try to find that one lost coin, where is your passion level, Darren? And I think that if we examine our own hearts and we realize, you know what? Really? If I'm totally honest, I don't care that much then you know what I think this parable is telling us? It's saying we are missing the heart of God. We are missing Jesus' heart for lost people. And if we can't be bothered to make any efforts of time, giving of our financial resources, going out of our way, trying to redeem all of the opportunities that God gives us, then we need to take a serious look inside of our hearts and reevaluate where we are in our Christian life. God's heart is for people like lost sheep and lost coins. They may be rich, they may be poor, they may be popular, they may be social outcasts. God loves all of us, and He wants all of His kids to come back home. Well, I hope these two parables have inspired your heart regarding God's heart for lost people. Now, for most sermons I've heard about, hey, you should get inspired about trying to see people come back to Christ, they end right there. And I think we all walk away and we go, yes, that's so great. It's Sunday. I'm fired up. And then Monday morning comes and we go, uh, what was I supposed to do? And I'm not really sure how to start. Well, you know what? Jesus gives us an incredible little passage of Scripture. It's Luke 10, verses 1 through 3. Caleb's going to find that for us. Luke 10, 1 through 3. And this is what it says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do you realize that you and I here this morning, 
at Ocean View Community Church, we are actually the answer to that prayer. People have been praying that for thousands of years. Lord, there's an amazing harvest out there. Please send out more workers into the harvest. You and I are the answer to that prayer. And our job ultimately is to be joining the search party. As Jesus promises, there is a party in heaven for every lost person that comes back home to Jesus. And then we go through that exhilaration. We say, yeah, I want to be part of it. And then when Monday morning comes, we realize, I don't, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. And that's where the devil comes in. And he starts to put doubts in our minds. He says, you know what? Other Christians are called to help people find their way back to God. That's not what I have for you. He says, you don't know enough about the Bible. You, you, you're not qualified to do that. And then he starts attacking our life. And he says, well, remember that incident last week? See, you don't live a perfect, sinless life. You, you're not worthy to do this. This is somebody else's job. And all of those are lies. See, it takes all of us. None of us are perfect. We're all imperfect. But the amazing thing is God uses each and every one of us. What he's really interested in is a willing heart that says, I'm going to do this. But I want to give you some practical steps today. All right, so you've got the desire in your heart. I want to be used by God to reach somebody for Christ. But where do I start? How do I do this? Well, the first building block is building friendships. That's the first half of the equation. Now, when I say building friendships, I never ever want to communicate the idea that the only reason you're friends with someone is so you can lead them to Jesus. That doesn't feel very authentic or real or normal at all. But... On the other hand, when we have a friend who doesn't know Christ, of course, of course we want to share our testimony, our life story with them. Of course we want to relate. Man, God's doing this in my life, or I'm learning this. That feels really natural and authentic. Of course we'll inevitably share our faith with them. And you know what helps a friendship take a giant leap forward? Is what we read at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15. It says, Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And you know what? It's totally true. You can have a neighbor that you talk to for a year. And over the fence, you're like, hey, how's it going? And you talk about cutting your lawn or the weather or whatever. And those are good. Those are, that's a great place to start. But you have one meal with them or one cup of coffee down at Tim Hortons with them. And I guarantee you will learn more about that person in a quick half an hour cup of coffee than you will with an entire year of, hey, how's it going over the fence? We should take a little lesson from Jesus. He took time for people. He ate with them. He got to know them. There's a man named Yoikim Yeremias, and he wrote a book on the parables of Jesus. Great scholar. He says... The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship, having someone over for a meal, is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Now, for many of you, that's not a challenge. 
You got lots of unchurched people in your life. You know lots of people from work and sports and all the other things in your life. You say, man, there's there's a long list of people that I could have over for a meal or go for a cup of coffee with. But for others of you, when you take an honest look at your life, you realize, you know what? I interact with very few non-Christians over a year. And if I'm totally honest, I'm not sure anybody who doesn't know Jesus would actually call me their friend. And if that's where you're at this morning, I challenge you. you got to change that. You can't share the gospel effectively without having relationships with people. All right, so you got a friendship, you're going along, and then you, you feel like, man, i, I got to bring up God somehow. But I don't want to be weird about it. I don't want to do that in a really awkward way. How do I do that? And you know, I was thinking about a bunch of guys working on an old car, restoring an old car. And I looked up a website. And I was like, what are all the steps you would go through for body work? And you look at that cool old Mustang. And uh, when the guy got it, it was all beaten up. And then you look at the finished product. And there's a lot of steps there. And the guy talked about fabrication and rust repair. He goes, that's step one. Then you got to strip off the old paint. Then you got to do your body filler. And then you got to do your first coat of primer. And then your second primer coat. And then you got to sand it in application. You got to block out parts. And then finally you get it masked and you give it that final glossy coat of paint. And I was thinking about a bunch of guys in a shop working on an old car, restoring it. That's an incredible amount of time together. And if one of those guys was a believer and the other guys weren't, what an incredible opportunity. But a lot of people in those situations say, well, I didn't know how to start. It kind of felt awkward. I I didn't know how to kind of bring God into the conversation. And then I was thinking about, you know what? It's really not that hard. Just talk about something that's going on in our world. Right now, the Blue Jays are in the playoffs. And if they win today, they're on to the second round. I know what I'll be doing at 3.30 this afternoon. Anyways, um, one of the interesting things about the Blue Jays is their closer. His name's Roberto Asuno. He's a Mexican guy. And he obviously grew up a strong Catholic believer. And uh, this is what he does at the end of every game when he wins. When he comes into the ninth inning and he shuts him down and he gets three outs, he does something really interesting. And we're going to watch it right now. So Darren's going to kill the lights for us and Caleb's going to play it. All right, do you see what he did when he won? He crosses himself, and then he looks up, and he points to his heavenly Father, and then he goes like this. That's pretty cool. And I think what he's communicating is, thank you. Thank you to my heavenly Father. Now, that's an easy thing for a bunch of guys working on a car to talk about. You go, hey, have you seen how Asuna closes those games? What do you think about that? What do you think about a professional athlete that is public about their faith. 
you know what? That conversation's off to the races. You're going to have lots of good conversations. Well, then comes the part where you're not just bringing God up. You've had enough of a friendship with your unchurched friend that they start going, hey, I've got a question. What's the deal with God letting little kids starve to death in Africa? And they start giving you really hard questions. It would be really nice if God just said, you're not responsible to answer that. But unfortunately, that's not what he does. There's this really annoying verse in 1 Peter 3.15. This is what it says. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now again, you may be in a conversation, you may feel like you haven't got all the answers, and that is completely fine. But just the act of talking is a huge start. And there's some incredible resources out there. A couple of our favorite books that our church is using right now. One is The Reason for God by Tim Keller, and the other is uh, Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions by Andy Sire. Two amazing books. And if you started reading those with your unchurched friend, man, I'll bet you the conversations would deepen so fast. And then you know what the last step is? Once you've built that friendship, once you've been talking about God, you need to invite them. Invite them to something. Maybe it's something simple. Maybe it's like our Kids for Camp garage sale. And the simple act that a church is doing something that benefits its community may be a huge light bulb moment for your friend who doesn't know Jesus. All you got to do is invite him to a garage sale. It's pretty simple. Maybe it's something like our Remembrance Day service. And it's pretty neat as those have gone on year after year, they've gotten a reputation that they're a really great service. And they're, they're a pretty low-key service in terms of kind of the, the direct uh, you know, proclamation of the gospel. They're, we're celebrating that, absolutely. But it's done in a really interesting way. And that might be something you feel comfortable inviting to. Maybe it's our Christmas outreach, Christmas tales on the 26th. And then maybe it leads into those amazing Sundays that lead up to Christmas, the four Sundays of Advent. Maybe it's Christmas Eve services. I got to share that last year, uh, there was a family that we had built a friendship with. And it, it felt like we had been building that friendship for about four years. And our oldest daughter was in kindergarten with their kids. And we kept, you know, just being friends with them. I remember I invited the guy over. We watched the Super Bowl one year. Just tons and tons of stuff. And we had invited them lots of times to things at church. And there was always no, 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 no. And then finally... Last Christmas, we were at the little elementary school at the Christmas concert, and I sat down, and the husband and wife sat down beside me, and the youngest kid's there, and the other one's in the play, and all of a sudden, the wife looks at me and goes, hey, I think we're going to come to your Christmas Eve services. I was like, really? That's amazing. That's a work of God, because I've been trying for this for four years, and it was so cool to have them come to Christmas Eve, and so fun, and they had a great time. You know what? You can do it. You can be that shepherd that's going out and helping bring back lost sheep. You can be that person finding that lost coin. We are partnering with God. 
Jesus' heart, the heart of the Holy Spirit, is so much deeper, so much passionate than we could ever muster. And all they ask is that we join in on the rescue team. And part of what I want you to walk away with this morning is a real sense, isn't the heart of God amazing? Look at the lengths that God will go to to see his kids come back home. There is a rescue mission that's been going on ever since Adam and Eve turned their backs on God and brought sin into the world. And you and I have the immense privilege of joining in on the rescue mission. And you know what? There are people in all of our communities, in Crofton, in Shimana, Saltaire, Lady Smith, and Cedar, that desperately need us to step up and take our part on the rescue team. Mateus, come pray for us.